Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch in modern-day Syria, uh, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, non-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. They are preaching that Jesus is Lord. This man, this wandering Jewish teacher, was not just a, a prophet or a kind of teacher, but he was God in the flesh. And this is the bit, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We're going to focus on this one verse. I'm going to read it again. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. But he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let me pray. Lord, I want to pray that you would come and speak to us by your spirit, that you would speak to every person in the room here, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us, that you would show us what it looks like to endure in faith, that you would make us a people who are wholehearted in our devotion to you, full of steadfastness. I pray that you would do that work in us this morning by your grace. Amen. So we have a man called Barnabas here. Now, he, remember, if you go back a little bit in the book of Acts, you'll see that this man was originally called Joseph, and he's been named Barnabas by the apostles. And why did they name him that? Well, it means son of encouragement. He's a man known for his encouragement. And so he comes here with an encouraging word for this church in Antioch. And he's encouraging them. He's, he's, he's recognizing that the Lord has brought salvation here. He's celebrating what he's seeing. He can see the grace of, of God at work in this community. And then he says, don't depart from this. Don't depart from this. This is a lifelong calling. This is not just a kind of flash in the pan. Yeah, I don't know if you've had those hobbies in life that you were once into and you poured your time into and, and you spent a lot of time in it. And now you think back, it's just a distant memory. You know, for me, I'm, I know I'm going to lose lots of you at this moment, Warhammer, tabletop gaming, in my early teens, you know, little pieces, dreadnoughts, uh, Imperial Guards, Space Marines, Blood Angels, I'm thinking, what is he talking about? It, <laughs> but basically, little, little characters, and you roll dices, and you work out how far they go, and there was a point in my early teens that you, I could have told you everything about it, and now it's, it's a distant memory. I, I have barely any kind of recollection about much of it. And Barnabas is saying, don't let your faith be like that phase in your life that you once invested your time into this, and this consumed you, and now it's just a distant memory. And actually, this exhortation that Barnabas is giving them to remain faithful is a pattern in, in the book of Acts. A number of times, we see this same exhortation. In Acts chapter 13, uh, in a different Antioch, 
there, uh, there are Jews who respond to the message of the gospel. They are being drawn to Christ. And Paul and Barnabas encouraged them exactly the same way. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts followed Paul and Barnabas. They've been preaching in, in the synagogue, and some of them are, are drawn in. And said many converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. God, by his grace, is revealing himself to you. Continue in this. Later on, in Acts chapter 14, uh, the disciples have been preaching in Lystra and Iconium, and they, they go to Derbe, and, they then, and they're actually they're sto- they're stoned uh, in Lystra, and, but, uh, and they come back from Derbe to Lystra. They go back to the place they were stoned, which is just kind of mind-boggling, quite frankly, and they go back and they encourage the disciples in the same way. When they'd preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see this again in Acts 16 where uh, at the end of the kind of conversion of the Philippian church, uh, they give a similar kind of encouragement. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Again and again, as we see the church formed in different locations across the book of Acts, there is a continuing theme. As the apostles leave them, they are saying, stay with this. Do not depart from the faith that has been established amongst you. Remain faithful. This is a bit like a, a, in a marriage ceremony. You, many of you have been to a Christian marriage ceremony. And uh, there's a point where the couple say their vows to one another, and they make incredible promises, like, I will be with you till death do us part. I will be with you come what may. And at the end, the minister might hold their hands together, they've exchanged rings, and he says, what God has joined together, what, what God has joined together let no man put asunder. And what he's saying is, this union... Do not break it. Remain faithful to those promises that you have just made. And he sends them out to a lifetime of faithfulness. See, you heard the vows that you've made. You heard the promises that you made. Now stick to them. And in the same way in this Antioch church, you can imagine they've, they've made similar kind of promises. They've been baptized. And as they're baptized, they perhaps have promised to remain faithful to Christ, to continue walking with him until their dying day. And in the same way, Barnabas is saying, remain faithful to those promises that you made. Stay with Christ. And the question this forces us to ask is, will you finish the race? Will you finish the race? The Christian life is not so much about whether you start with Christ, whether you make a kind of some sort of affirmation of faith, you pray a prayer with someone. It's not really about whether you start. The question is whether you end with Christ. The question is, will you have a lifetime ahead of you? Will you be following Christ in 50 years' time? That is the question that this passage would provoke you to ask yourself. And actually, there are plenty of cautionary tales in the New Testament where we hear of individuals who began well, who seemed to start out with Christ, but then depart from him. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul describes them as having made a shipwreck of their faith, a sense to which their faith has been broken perhaps on the rocks of reality in some way that they have responded to something in their life, their faith has been destroyed. They've departed from Christ, departed from the church. Or Demas in 2 Timothy, 
Paul describes him as a kind of fellow laborer. He's been walking with him. There's something about his life that Paul said, I like what I see. I want you to come with me and labor with me. So he appears like a, a, a Christian at least. And then he said, describes in what must be tragic words for Paul to write, that he has departed because he is in love with this present world. He's in love with this present world. He's departed from Christ because he loves the world. And what he's describing is, of course, we're called to love our neighbors. He's not talking about that. He's saying that he's, he's been drawn away by temptation and sin, that he loves it too much. And unfortunately, as a pastor, I've seen this pattern in people's lives sometimes where, where effectively people say, well, I'm, I just can't say no to this. And, they, and perhaps they, they justify what they know to be wrong and they continue to walk in a pattern of this, and they find that kind of compromise of walking in direct opposition to God in their lifestyle with their, uh, in, in direct contradiction to, contradiction to their stated faith, and that compromise feels too uncomfortable to bear with. And eventually they withdraw, and they withdraw from the church, and they withdraw from Christ. And it's sobering. Even Jesus speaks about this in the parable of the sower. He describes different seeds that are planted but then fail to grow up to fruitfulness. In Luke chapter 8, he describes ones whose lives are choked, perhaps some, not by something that appears wrong, but what he describes by as the cares of this world. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Cares, riches, and pleasures of life. These are perhaps not bad things in and of themselves, but that focus, their focus has been removed from Christ. They've become consumed by the cares of this world, by the riches, by, by, by things that perhaps don't feel necessarily wrong, but it's taken over their heart. And so they become distracted from their pursuit of Christ, consumed by the cares of this life, and they stop caring about Christ. And again, I've seen that in, in, in folk who perhaps have become consumed by other things and stop going to church and perhaps in, the, in time withdraw from Christ. And how do we explain this? What's going on here? Well, the, I would argue the New Testament gives us a sobering challenge that says, your faith, the genuineness of your faith will be seen by whether you endure with Christ. It says the reason why those departed from us is because they never really had faith to begin with. John puts it like this. He's describing some who've gone out from them, from the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's like you can, you can have a beginning of faith. You can spend some time around the church and perhaps even make a declaration of faith. But if that then is not seen in your life, in the li across your lifetime, then we say we didn't re that really wasn't faith. And so the question for all of us is, will we endure? And what I love about this, this encouragement from Barnabas is that it's realistic. It's realistic about the challenges of the Christian life. That Barnabas is saying, remain faithful, because presumably they need to know that it's going to be hard. That he knows that they're going to experience challenges. 
I mentioned one of the times he encourages them to remain faithful. It's just after being stoned in that city. In a sense, the church has birthed in opposition. They know as they come to faith in Christ, they're going to face trials and opposition from the culture around them. It's comforting because the Christian life often feels hard. Whether it's resisting temptation, resisting desires that feel so deep within you, or that, that challenge of looking different to the people around you, being comfortable with that sense of difference, or just persevering in the ordinary spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading the Bible when you're tired and it's the very last thing you want to do. Barnabas says, in the midst of that challenge, keep going. You know, there's some, such a, a kind of misunderstanding sometimes. You may have even heard this in churches where an evangelist has preached something along the lines of come to Christ and all your troubles will be over. And we want to say, no, it's the complete opposite. Come to Christ and your troubles will begin. (laughs) Before you could kind of do what you wanted, you could do as you pleased from whatever you desired, now you are living a life of crucifying the flesh, of saying no to those same desires. Before you could make common cause with others, you could pursue those desires with the people around you, and you could enjoy life together in that way, so to speak. Enjoy in inverted commas. Now you're called to be a distinctive people. Salt and light in the world, distinctive, pointing to Christ who has put his spirit within you. Before you were untroubled by any kind of spiritual evil, now as you pursue Christ, Satan is out to get you and to attack and undermine the faith that Christ has planted there. So we now say, how do we have enduring faith in the midst of those challenges? And Barnabas is giving us three ideas here. First, confidence in the grace of God, that he will enable you to endure. Second of all, steadfastness, a certain sense of resilience and a commitment to steadfastly endure with Christ. And thirdly, a wholehearted devotion that you will endure because you love him. Confidence in God, steadfastness, and a love for Christ. Put those three together, and you have a people of God who, who look different, who have a faith that endures, but, but you can see by their lives that that commitment goes deep. And that is the kind of people that Barnabas wants to call us to be this morning. First of all, confident in God's help. Barnabas begins by acknowledging God's work amongst them. If we are to endure in the Christian life, we need absolute confidence that God is at work in our lives. And so we need to encourage each other by identifying God's work in each other's lives. You see, Barnabas begins by celebrating the grace of God at work in this church. He says, when he came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now that word glad doesn't quite do justice to what Barnabas is experiencing in this moment. You know, you write an email to someone, I'm glad you had a nice holiday, and really you don't really mind, care either way where their holiday was, but it's kind of nice politeness. That's the British glad, right? Well, this is not that. The, the way it can literally be translated as was joyed. He is rejoicing. He's celebrating. The Lord has brought about salvation of the, of the Greeks here in Antioch, and he is delighted with what he sees. But he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not commending them. He's not celebrating them. He's not saying, well done on your salvation. He, he describes the grace of God. He's saying, this is God's work. This is God's mercy. That word grace just means gift. 
saying, this is God's gift to you. The salvation that you have and everything else that we see in this community, there may be more than just salvation that he's celebrating. He may be celebrating their love together. There may be all sorts of things that he sees that he is celebrating. But he's saying, everything that is good about this community is God's work amongst you. And he is celebrating that. Part of all of this, of course, relates back to Barnabas. That he is the son of encouragement. And what, what is encouragement from the New Testament perspective? As you look through Barnabas' life, if you take him as a case study, I would argue that the encouragement is about seeing the way God is at work in someone and calling it out and celebrating it. That is biblical encouragement, not just kind of straight kind of puffing someone up, but actually saying, I see the way God is at work in your life and I rejoice in it, I celebrate it, and I encourage you to continue along that same vein. You see this in, in, in Barnabas' life in a number of different places. You see it in Acts chapter 9, when, he, when we first come across Paul just after his conversion. And if you remember, the Jerusalem apostles, the Jerusalem church, are, are a little bit anxious, because this is Paul. He's just been stoning Christians. He's just been participating in the persecution of the church. They are, they are not confident in this guy. They don't want to spend time with him. But Barnabas gets alongside him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, the road to Damascus, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he, that's talking about Paul, had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas sees something. The, the church around him don't see it, but he says, no, no, I can see there is faith in this man. I can see it because you can see the way he is now declaring Christ to the people in Damascus. Barnabas can see God's work. Later on in Acts chapter uh, 15, Barnabas and Paul have been ministering together and they've been traveling and there's a, they have a traveling companion called John Mark. And they have an argument, Paul and Barnabas, because Paul is just disappointed in John Mark. John Mark at one point has kind of withdrawn from their missionary journey and Barnabas isn't having it. And there's a dispute between them. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul's saying, let's go out and do it again. Let's go and preach the gospel. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there, there, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed and, and they go on their separate ways. It's like Barnabas is saying, you can't, we don't know exactly what he's saying, but I think what he's saying is, no, I can see faith in John Mark. I can see that this man, that God has put something in him, and we must continue with him. I want to continue with him. Do not kind of cast him aside because of his former failure. I can see faith in him. And that is what's going on here. Barnabas is saying, I can see that God has formed something here. Now continue in it. His encouragement is very loudly and clearly, God is at work amongst you. And the reason why this is relevant to us is, how often do you doubt God's work in your life? How often do you see the struggles with sin in your life? How often do you feel a sense of deep frustration with yourself that you just say, I don't know where God is. I don't know where he is. He's not at work in my life. And you're frustrated with yourself and you feel despondent. And this speaks directly to that sense of frustration and says, no. You must see that God is at work in you. You must look for the moments where you can see. And in fact, you must do that in other people's lives. 
that we have a role and responsibility to encourage each other as we see what God is doing in each other's lives. And that is how we endure in the Christian life. And what this says loudly and clearly is, all of the Christian life is grace. Now, you say grace. What do you mean by grace? We said it's this word gift. And we, we understand the word grace at least in two ways. On one hand, we understand grace as describing the salvation that we've received. The sense to which we as Christians did not bring about this faith in ourselves. We did not deserve the salvation that we've received. We have received an, a gift of God's mercy. And we celebrate that grace. We celebrate the fact that God has welcomed us amongst us even though we did nothing to deserve it. That's one way of understanding grace. But there's a second way of understanding grace, which is operating in this passage, and it is God's ongoing mercy, ongoing work in our lives, that we begin in grace, but we continue in grace. And you see this all the way through the New Testament. One great illustration of that idea when, of God's grace amongst us is the way Paul describes God's help in suffering. And he describes a thorn in the flesh. He describes a struggle. We don't know what the thorn is. It might be uh, sickness. It might be sin. We're not sure. But he describes this struggle. And he basically asks God to take this thing away from him. And this is God's response. Paul is telling us. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. To be honest, there are days when it feels like there are not more important words in the New Testament for me personally. My grace is sufficient for you. He's not saying my salvation mercy is sufficient for you. We celebrate that. He's saying my help, my mercy, my strength is sufficient for you. As you seek to walk with me, I will strengthen you and enable you to overcome this thorn, to resist the temptation or to walk through this sickness. Sometimes as Christians, we think God gave us his grace at the beginning, he saved us, and then we're on our own. And that's the miss, no, 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 missing the point completely there. Saying we come in through grace, and then we continue through grace. The New Testament is so loud and clear on this point that again and again, as we see the great endurance race of the Christian life, as we look to that challenge of remaining faithful to him for the next five decades or more, however long God gives you, you do not need to be intimidated because God has promised his strength, his grace to continue to endure with him. It says loudly and clearly, the power to endure does not come from you. That is why Paul is able in that passage to boast in his weakness. Now, most of us, we don't boast in our weaknesses. We might subtly boast in our strengths. We might find ways of subtly alluding to the ways that we are better than other people because it's in the human heart. We want to feel better about ourselves and we want to compare ourselves positively to others. But Paul doesn't do that. He's boasting in his weakness, saying basically, I actually have got to the point where I can actually celebrate my weakness. Why? Because I have an absolute conviction in God's strength in my weakness. And that changes how you view the Christian life completely. There are so many wonderful promises around this in the New Testament. Just to pick one or two, Philippians 1. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are days when you just feel like, I am an utter failure in the Christian life. I just want to give up. I can't do this. He says, no, he will bring it to completion. He will carry you home. 
or Ephesians chapter 3. I, I read the, uh, part of this passage at the beginning of the service. But he, went, he goes on. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Why we are so passionate about the gift of the Holy Spirit is because there is a power at work with, within us that enables us to be sanctified and changed by Christ as we continue with him. This great immeasurable power. I think Becca mentioned that as she was leading worship. The idea that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, it is mind-blowing. Or Hebrews chapter 4. It says, actually, we, we have one who knows our weaknesses. Christ who walked in, who stepped into human weakness. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Christ knows your struggles. <laughs> he knows your weakness. You do not need to despair of your weaknesses. Christ knows it and intends to work in your weaknesses. How should this feel? It should feel liberating. It should feel like there is a burden being lifted off your shoulders. The pressure is off. Of course there's something for us to do. Of course we're called to walk in steadfastness. But that, the yoke of human striving has been lifted off our shoulders as we depend on Christ for everything he has called us to. Isn't this what we see when Jesus invites us in Matthew 11 to take off the worldly yoke, so to speak, the yoke of the law or the yoke of self-justification, and instead put on his yoke? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. And the picture there, and different people look at this different ways, but one way of understanding this picture is the idea that you have been yoked with Christ. That Christ has taken one side of the yoke, you, you kind of the, the, it's a kind of agricultural thing that goes on bulls necks and they've you've kind of got two bulls pulling a cart together and the idea is you are on one side of the yoke and christ is on the other and the, your yoke mate so to speak is the living god and as you seek to walk through the christian life you have christ driving the yoke forward and you're kind of along for the ride that you've been united with him and he is the one who has saved you he is the one who's working sanctification in your life and you are to cooperate and walk with him it's liberating. It's also humbling. It says that when we look back at our lives and we are old and gray and we kind of reflect on a lifetime of following Christ, you can't take credit for it. You can't look back and say, wasn't that great? Say, no, it is Christ who is at work in me for those many decades. Think about even in this passage. Do you remember how it describes the salvation? It says, the Lord's hand was upon them. Okay, it was God who saved these people. In fact, the, the men who have gone on this missionary journey, these, and these guys from Cyrene who have preached the gospel there, they're not even named. They don't even get the credit. The one who gets the credit for this birth of the church in Antioch is the living God. In the same way, you don't get the credit for the sanctification in your life, for the perseverance in the midst of hardship. We say, no, that was God's work in us. And so we walk in conscious dependence. How do, we know, how do I know whether you have got this? 
that you live in this posture of dependence? I would say it's prayer. If you have understood this idea, you'll be the kind of person who goes to your knees regularly when you feel weak and say, God, I need you. If you're the kind of person who, when you're faced with hardships, you kind of work out how to optimize the situation, you work out how you can have strength, and you look at yourself, then you've missed the point. The way you manifest, the way we know that you've got this, is whether you're on your knees. It says, God, I need you. Would you give me the strength I need to persevere? By the way, contrast this with secularism. Contrast this with the empowerment language that we see in our culture. And suddenly, I think Christianity looks so much better. The secular cry, believe in yourself. That positive self-talk, you are strong, you are fierce. Those different words that you, maybe you do say to yourself, but I would argue are really rubbish in comparison to this. Why? Don't they feel empty, first of all? Second of all, you'll regularly recognize your own inadequacy. So it just feels like you're trying to kid yourself. Like you kind of know that you're not fierce and you're not strong, but you say it to yourself anyway. And it's, it's exhausting. Trying to be strong all the time is exhausting. Trying to put on a front. That's why people can't really often admit to weakness, because it just feels a bit weak, <laughs> a bit rubbish. That's the culture of empowerment. But no, this says no, you don't, don't need to empower yourself because you worship a living God who is much more powerful than you so you can depend on him in weakness. In fact, the Christian life requires you. If you're not a Christian, the way into the Christian life is by accepting your weakness, by accepting your sin, your inability to follow God. I think we were just reading about this problem of sin this morning with uh, our little kids. I remember my, my eldest was like, uh, we were talking about whether we ever feel like we've failed. And he was like, no, not m- most of the time not. You know, <laughs> like, I know most of the time I follow God kind of thing. <laughs> and, he, and, that, and he exposes something in all our hearts that we want to try, and <laughs> to try and believe the best about ourselves. But the gospel gives us permission to recognize the very worst about ourselves. And to come for him for mercy. To come to him for strength. And by the way, this speaks about the importance of encouragement. This is about how we live together as a church. It's so easy to lose sight of God's work in you, but like Barnabas, we have a role of pointing out where we can see God at work in each other's lives, of reminding each other when things feel bleak that he is at work. I think about Grace London. I think about our church. I think what encourages me about our church well, I see the grace of God in the love of the church for each other. I see, I hear stories of different people serving each other in need that encourage my heart. One couple who were going through a real trial said they were blown away by the way their life group and different people around them served them in the midst of that trial. I give thanks for that love. I see a passion and devotion to God in some in this church that just is so encouraging that almost by default people are saying, of course, of course I would devote myself to the living God. Of course I would surrender my life and sacrifice everything for him. I see a hunger for the work of the Holy Spirit in some. I see a desire for more of God's work amongst us by his spirit. And I see a steady stream of folk coming to faith. And when I look at those things, those are meant to encourage us that God is at work amongst us. It's a springboard into prayer. To say, God, we see what you're doing, now let's pray for more. It's not a cause for credit taking, it's a cause for looking and saying, look what God is doing amongst us, let's keep asking and longing for more of his work amongst us. What do you see in someone else that shows God is at work in their lives? Are there people in your life who God has put in there that you need to bring encouragement to, 
that you need to point out to them where you can see God at work in them. Perhaps you've seen someone changed in some way. You, over time, you've known them for a number of years, and you say, actually, I, I know a few years ago you really struggled with pride, <laughs> and now I can really see a humility in you. Or perhaps you see a, a brother or sister going through a kind of spiritual revitalization. You see a new hunger for God in their lives, and you, you want to say, I can, I'm so encouraged by this, if it encourages you genuinely, that you say, that is a real blessing to me. Or you see a brother or sister persevering through hardship. Again, I see this in our church sometimes, where one brother or sister would, would kind of send an encouraging note to another who's going through hardship. Say, I can see what you're doing. I can see your perseverance. I can see God's work in you as you persevere through this. What a gift that is to that moment, in that moment, to that person who's struggling. And you might think, well, I've got nothing to encourage. When I look at my life, there's nothing I can encourage, I could be encouraged about. Well, Paul says, if you say Jesus is Lord, if there is an affirmation of the Lordship of Christ, you couldn't have done that without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's a miracle of faith in your life, and you didn't make it yourself, God did. So start there. Start there. We say, God is at work, he brought faith in your life. Even if everything else feels like it's a kind of smoldering wick right now, even if your whole life feels like a mess, you say, at the very heart, I can still see that God put faith in my life. And so Christ would want to encourage and to blow on that, the embers of faith that remain in your life, the smoldering wick, and bring it to the light. Don't give up. Barnabas would say, endure by remembering that God is at work in you, however hard it feels, and he will sustain you in this walk. But there's something for us to do as well, to walk in steadfastness. Barnabas is encouraging us to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. Those who walk with an enduring faith are those who walk with a resilient commitment to keep walking with Christ, come what may, whatever the circumstances. You heard the end of this verse, uh, verse 23, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, there's a paradox here. We say God is at work, and yet we have a responsibility to walk faithfully and with steadfastness. Barnabas is saying, God has done this, but remain faithful. You see this in Paul's writing. He talks about God's strength and his weakness, but he also talks about straining forward, about beating his body into submission. He speaks about a kind of energy and an exertion in his pursuit of Christ. There's nothing passive about the idea that God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life. We celebrate that, but there's nothing passive about it. Instead, you must continue to persevere with steadfastness. It's not let go, it's not let go and let God. It's persevere. Remain, seek to walk in dependence, to remain faithful in steadfastness. So what is steadfastness? Well, I think really the best way to describe this is a posture. It's one who is firmly fixed in place, who's immovable, like a rugby player in a scrum with the studs on their boots, firmly placed in the ground at this point. You think, he's never played rugby before. <laughs> And as the, as the opposition is kind of thrusting against him, he is pushing back. There is a kind of firmness and steadfastness. As you are being pushed back by sinful desires, by a sense of being different to the people around you, by perhaps opposition that you're facing from different folk in your life, by pressure, there is a forward momentum inside you that keeps on pushing even amidst that thing that is pushing against you that says, I will not give up on Christ. That sense of steadfastness is a kind of sense of rugged determination to keep on going that says deep within me, I will stay faithful to Christ. What does the opposite look like? Sometimes we think, well, the way to define something is seeing what it isn't. 
Well, one way I think we describe the opposite of steadfastness is passivity. A kind of drifting in the Christian life. A going through the motions of going to church and going to life group, but no active pursuit of Christ. No sense of determination. No inner conviction that says inside you, I want to see Christ formed in my life. I want to know him. I want to see him shape me. Instead, you're just kind of carried along by some of the kind of rhythms that we find ourselves in together. But there's no hunger, no intentionality about your Christian life. I mean, the irony is some of us, we're not passive about other areas of our lives, are we? We're not passive about our career development. We're going and doing courses online and we're finding ways to advance our career trajectory. But there's a passivity about our Christian life. Don't hear me the wrong way. I'm not saying if you're in a busy job that, that I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying, that, that busyness is inherently sinful. But what I am saying is, are we as active and intentional about our spiritual life as the other areas of our lives, the good, other important things? So, you know, this would call us to have a kind of intentionality. So there's a passivity, that's one way. Another way is a, a kind of flaky faith. The opposite of steadfastness is flakiness, and Londoners sometimes are flaky. You know, the, the message, of half an hour before you meet them, I'm sorry, I can't meet you, that kind of thing. There's an inconsistent faith, is what I think he's describing. The sense of which we come to church intermittently. Maybe you come when things are difficult. You, most of the time, you go on your life, you don't really think about God, and then things are difficult, and then you come to God. Then you come to the church. Or the other way around. You kind of can maintain a faith when things are great, but when things are difficult, you withdraw. You withdraw from the church and you withdraw from God. Either way, there's a kind of inconsistency to your faith. There's not that kind of pattern of faithfulness. And what do they lack? Both these ideas at the heart, they lack commitment. This steadfastness means commitment. The steadfastness about your faith is about a kind of deep commitment to Christ, that deep within you say, Christ is mine, and I am his, and nothing can change that. And how do we see that manifest? It's a willingness to stay the course, even when things are difficult. The perseverance that he's describing will be shown when things are difficult in your life. That is why James speaks about trials, and he speaks about how they're actually good for us, which just sounds bizarre, to us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes the trials in your life are there to build this perseverance, that you can learn to walk with Christ, even when you don't feel it. Even when you say, I feel kind of a little bit empty in my Christian life, I'm going to keep walking in faithfulness. I'm going to keep showing up to life group. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep opening my Bible because I need God in the midst of this trial. That is what faithfulness looks like. It's a willingness to keep getting up. So the Christian life will often feel like you've just been knocked on your back. And I think often it's like you're going with God and then you get drawn into sin in some way in your life. Perhaps something difficult happens or perhaps you just make some bad choices and you find yourself on the floor and you think, oh, what has happened again? I've got myself here in this mess. And you have a choice at that moment. Am I going to despair? Am I going to wallow in my sin? Or am I going to get up? And the Christian life is just about getting back up. Why? Because of the grace of God. The grace of God enables us to keep getting up again and again. Christians are like the um, children of uh, that song by Chuambawamba. 
children of the 90s here with me. I get knocked down, but I go up again. <laughs> Never going to keep me down. <laughs> I was re-listening to that last night as I was, <laughs> um, as I was preparing this. <laughs> the Christian life means getting knocked down because we live in a fallen world and we are sinful people. And yet we get back up because of the grace of God. And this steadfastness is Christ-like. This steadfastness is Christ bringing his character and putting it in us. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about the one who went before us, who ran with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we lack endurance, we just have to look at Christ the one who endured through persevered, who persevered through suffering, who persevered through temptation, through betrayal, who never gave in to temptation, and continued to persevere. And we say, God, would you do it in us? The Holy Spirit is making us like Christ. And so we ask him for that same perseverance. Finally, devoted hearts. Ultimately, your ongoing faithfulness to Christ will be because you are devoted from the heart. Deep within you, you feel affection for him and joy because of him. You say, I will remain faithful to him. Why? Because I love him. This passage, this phrase, steadfast purpose, in verse 23, could lit is literally written, purpose of the heart. And other translations translate it with that heart in mind. The NIV translates it, remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. NAT translates it, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. What is it all about this language of the heart? Well, it's about your emotions, about your desires, about your inner convictions, saying you cannot stay faithful to Christ unless your inner man, your desires, your emotions, what you love, has been reshaped by Christ. Without this, you just have a superficial devotion. You remember we looked at this with hypocrisy a few weeks ago. Jesus describes this in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he's not positive about it. You cannot kind of have a, a veneer of devotion. You can't just come to church and kind of say, well, that's my devotion. No, it's about your heart. It's about whether you really love Christ, but whether you feel a genuine affection and gratitude towards Christ. It says you will remain faithful to him because you love him. Now, marriage is a good illustration. Sometimes you will remain faithful to your spouse because you made a promise. And, and you're going through a period of hardship in your marriage and say, I made a promise. I will remain and commit to my spouse, even when things are hard. That's right and true. There is a kind of sense of commitment and duty in love. And there's also delight. If, you, if that was your only posture for seven decades of marriage, I will remain faithful because I made a commitment, that will not be enough, I would argue. Now, the reason why you remain faithful to your spouse is because you love them. It sounds kind of silly, so obvious that you've got to miss, miss it. That actually the strength of your affection and delight and joy in your spouse, that is what will drive you to faithfulness. That's why marriages often think, talk about, when we talk in, in kind of marriage prep about kind of investing in your relationship together and building and strengthening that love by acts of service or kind words or however your spouse would experience that love sense of which you're cultivating delight and affection and gratitude for your spouse. And that is the way your, your marriage is strengthened. And in the same way, in the Christian life, if we take marriage as often a picture of our relationship with God, we too want to be cultivating an affection and delight for God. 
So we ask ourselves, what is the state of your heart towards Christ right now? Are you grateful towards him? Or is there kind of mild resentment as he hasn't answered the prayers that you wanted in the way that you wanted him to answer them? Is there affection and love towards him? Or just apathy? No sense of genuine desire to spend time with him. He's calling for devoted hearts here. Do you actually desire to devote yourself to Christ? Or are you just going to say that because you're in a church and that's kind of what we'd expect? Think about any kind of picture of devotion. A devoted spouse caring for their sick loved one. Or a devoted carer. That picture of devotion always involves love. It's not just kind of they're doing it out of duty. They're doing it because they love them. So what is the right response to this? Cultivate that love for Christ in your heart. In Song of Songs, he describes, uh, the beloved, it's, it's a picture of marriage, but it's also a picture of our relationship with God and the, 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 kind of the, one who's the, the, the woman who's a picture of the church speaks to the, her beloved, her lover, and says, your love is more delightful than wine. How do you find this love for Christ in your heart? It's remembering how beautiful, how good God is. Your love is more delightful than wine. Think about a nice, cool glass of white wine on a summer's day. A glass of thirst-quenching cider. A Diet Coke, if that's your tipple. That refreshing feeling. That sense of pleasure as it kind of floods your body. Something to be enjoyed. Do you ever take time to enjoy God? Do you ever take time just to linger with him? and to remember and to feel that delight. I don't think it's the kind of norm that every moment of the day you will be experiencing delight in God, but it should be part of our experience. Delight, a sense of gratitude. As you remember the goodness of God, as you remember the love that is better than life, you feel delight, you feel gratitude. And that is the best antidote to any kind of temptation. The great fight in Christianity is not fixating on what you can't have, but finding a superior joy, a joy in Christ that is better than the momentary high that leaves you feeling empty. And so there's a work to be done here to fight for joy. That's not about making yourself feel emotions, but helping your heart match up with reality. You know intellectually that God is perfectly true, perfectly beautiful, and perfectly lovely. And what this is doing is just asking God to help you to see that, to feel that to know that deeply within your core, to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. How do we do that? We remain with Christ. And when he said remain with Christ, he's not talking about just a lifetime there. The idea of remaining with Christ is lingering with him. Jesus speaks about, in John 15, about abiding with Christ, abiding with me. He gives a picture of a vine and a branch, a sense to which you are the vine connected, sorry, you are the branch connected with the vine and you're being nourished by him. The Christian life is about pursuing God and pursuing that nourishment, pursuing that strength, pursuing that joy as you draw near to Christ each day, as you pray, as you read the Bible. That is our calling, to fight for joy found in Christ, to fight to enjoy him, to find the joy that he promises. So as we conclude here, then I want you to hear the call to deep faith, to be a people who are confident in the promises of God, confident in the goodness of God, that he will lead you home by grace. To be people who 
who want to be wholehearted in their devotion to him, who where Christ has kind of taken deep root in their hearts, who's taken over their inner man, who are steadfast and firm in their commitment to him. But as we hear this call to faithfulness, we know we are not the faithful people we wish we were. As we, call, as we hear Barnabas' call to remain faithful, we remember last Christ's faithfulness to us. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. As we hear the call to faithfulness, we remember the faithfulness of Christ. Remember that he is the one who will enable us to make our way home, to endure with him for eternity. And so we come to him in dependence. Say, God, would you make us wholehearted? Would you make us a people who are steadfast? Would we hold on to you, hold on to your promises that you will enable us to endure, that you will bring our faith to completion?